You may notice, um, as I come to preach on this passage that was just read in Mark 10, that it's the same passage from last week. And that's because we decided to slow down and do a little mini-series on marriage. Last week, Kyle talked about the design for marriage and the rules regarding divorce. And this week, I'm going to look at what uh, Jesus says about marriage. And we did this because we know that marriage is difficult. Relationships are hard. So whether you're single, married, divorced, remarried, relationships are difficult and we need God's wisdom. So having said that, let me pray for his wisdom as we begin to look at his word. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we need you this morning. Lord, we need you to speak to us, to give us insight, wisdom, work in our hearts, Lord, as your word is read and preached so that we'll become more like Christ, our Savior. Lord, for all those who are here this morning that that hear these words and it brings up mixed emotions, Lord, I pray that you will be our comforter. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts all here together, Lord, will be to your glory, our Redeemer. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, um, a young couple once came to my office. They met with me. They said, we want to meet with you about something. And uh, they came in, and it wasn't long after they came into my office that the smiles started to wear off. See, this was a young couple that had two young children. They were active in the church. They, by all external appearances, seemed to have a good marriage. They served the church and volunteered in leading worship. And yet, when they came into my office, their faces fell as they began to explain how broken they were and how broken their marriage was. And they told me about the lying and the fights over money and the close calls at adultery. This is the 11th hour for this couple, and they looked at me and they said this question, is there any hope for our marriage? Is there any hope for us? Well, if you've ever been married, you have asked that question at some point. If you're married here today, you have asked that question in your marriage. And I don't just mean that you have contemplated, is this the end? But you've asked that question, is there any hope for us to have a good marriage? Is there any hope for us to have health in our marriage? Is a good marriage possible for us? Maybe more importantly, you've asked the question, what do we do when it's not healthy? See, if we go to the bookstore, um, there are still some bookstores that exist. If you go to a bookstore um, and you look on the shelf, you're going to find a lot of books about how to have a healthy marriage. You're going to find a lot of books about how to do relationships right. If you scroll through your feed, you're going to see a lot of articles about the key to a healthy marriage and how to do it. We all want a healthy marriage, those of us who are married. Those of us who are single, we don't just want to be married in the future. We want a marriage that's healthy and strong. And we're even willing to read about it and study it and work on it if we just knew how to do it. So how do we have a good marriage? That's the million-dollar question, right? Well, there are a lot of different answers to that question. You know, maybe somebody told you before you got married, they said, hey, just never go to bed angry, or never sleep on the couch, or write handwritten notes every day. They gave you some advice. And a lot of times, Christians will say, if you want a healthy marriage, 
All you have to do is follow Jesus. And maybe you've seen the diagram of the triangle. The husband's on one side, the wife is on the other. As long as you're following Jesus, eventually you will meet in him. If you follow God, if you're both Christians, you will have a healthy, strong marriage. But that doesn't, that's, that is, there's some truth to that, but it doesn't feel satisfying, right? There's got to be more to it than that because we know that just being Christians doesn't make a healthy marriage. And we hear the family that prays together stays together. We know that's a good thing, but there's got to be more for us together as we work to, to have a healthy marriage. So that doesn't seem quite satisfying to us. So then maybe you go to a New York Times article or a TED Talk, and it says, here is the key to a healthy marriage. All you have to do to have a healthy marriage is forgiveness. If you forgive one another, you will have a healthy marriage. That is the key to healthy marriages. And you say, okay, we're getting somewhere. That's something good that we can do together. That's something to work on to bring health to our marriage. But forgiving is somewhat reactive, isn't it? That's what you do when there's a mistake. That's what you do when there's a problem. You forgive one another. But what are you doing to move towards? What is the purpose of forgiving one another? See, these answers to how to have a healthy marriage actually raise a bigger question for us. And the bigger question is not just how to have a healthy marriage, but what is a healthy marriage? How do we define a healthy marriage? Okay, so now we have the real question, how do we define a healthy marriage? What is a healthy marriage? What's the goal of a healthy marriage? Some people will say, well, we just read the verses. Jesus says to, to leave your father and mother, to hold fast in marriage, to not get divorced. So the marriage is healthy if you never get divorced. And you say, okay, that's it? So everyone who's still married has a healthy marriage. Well, no, it's got to be more than that, right? It can't just simply be that the only goal that Jesus is talking about in these verses is to stay there has to be something more for health. So then some people say, well, a healthy marriage is a marriage without conflict. And now that sounds appealing because if you're, in, if you're married and you're in conflict, you know that it would feel a lot easier if you didn't have conflict. In fact, I do a lot of marriage counseling and over the years a lot of engagement counseling for couples who are about to get married and I always ask him this question. I say, how did your family deal with conflict? And I can't tell you how many times someone has looked at me and said, I came from the perfect family. My parents never fought. I never even saw my parents disagree on anything. To which I reply, I'm going to destroy your perception of your parents. <laughs> no, I don't do that directly. I... That may happen. But what I say is, so your parents taught you that a healthy marriage is a marriage without conflict. So they, they either taught you that conflict is bad or you need to learn how to hide. And every couple who's in pre-marriage counseling has to deal with that question. How did my family deal with conflict? And I can't tell you how many people who are engaged have never had a conflict 
And that's why when it happens in marriage, it hits so hard. And so I try to get them to fight. (laughs) Because as Kyle said last week, if there's no conflict in the marriage, in the relationship, it could be because there's distance. There's too much distance for friction. And we know that in relationships and in every part of life, conflict can actually be a way to growth, right? Stress and release, that's the way things grow. And in our marriages, conflict don't have to, doesn't have to be an obstacle to a healthy marriage. Conflict could actually be an essential part of a healthy marriage. So I think we can say that a marriage without conflict is not the goal. A marriage without any fighting, as appealing as it may be, is not the goal. It's not the definition of a healthy marriage. So then someone says, well, maybe a healthy marriage is a marriage with lots of sex in the marriage and no sex outside the marriage. Those are the rules that Jesus gives. So if you do it that way, then you'll have a good marriage. And again, that's a very good thing. But I don't think we would say that Sex in the marriage, no sex out of marriage is the purpose of marriage because sex is made for marriage, not marriage for sex. So if we just focus on sexuality, that seems to come up short as well. So then someone says, okay, well, here's the answer. If it's not about um, simply staying together, if it's not about just avoiding conflict, If it's not about sex, then maybe it's about ministry. If the couple is active in church, if they're ministering together, then they'll have a healthy marriage. That is the definition of a healthy marriage. And if you remember last week, we actually talked about this, that there is a mission to marriage, that our marriage is not just for us, but it's for the life of the world. And so again, that's a very good thing that we need to cultivate in our marriages to learn to minister together and to serve others through our marriage. But any of us can look at church leaders and say that being a ministry leader does not guarantee a healthy marriage. Being a ministry leader does not mean that your marriage is healthy. And there are lots of people who've grown up with famous parents who've been engaged in ministry as pastors and evangelists and missionaries, and they grow up and they said, yeah, my my parents were great leaders in the church, but they weren't great parents. And we've seen spouses say, yeah, my husband is a great pastor, but he's an absent husband. And so just engaging in ministry seems to miss the mark as well. So what is a good marriage? How do we define it? What's the goal? What makes a good marriage good? Does Jesus answer that question? I think he does. I think as we look at this passage, Jesus is doing more than simply giving us the answer to what are the rules for divorce. Remember, that's what the disciples ask. When is it lawful? Is it lawful to get a divorce? And Jesus answers their question, but he also does something else. He gives us a picture of what marriage is going towards, what the goal is for marriage, and what a healthy marriage is defined by. If we look closely, I think he tells us it's, it's more than simply staying together. I don't think he's saying, if you just stay together, you have fulfilled my plan for marriage. I think he says it's more than just, it's not just avoiding conflict. It's not sex. It's not ministry. There's something else. 
And if we look at these verses, we see Jesus pointing us all the way back to Genesis, to the inauguration of the institution of marriage. He's pointing us back to God's design, to this ancient marriage between a man named Adam and a woman named Eve. And according to Jesus and according to Genesis, this is what he tells us is the goal of marriage. This is a healthy marriage. If you look in in our passage starting in verse 7, he says it this way. He says, Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, I'm going to change a little one word, actually two words in this verse. The ESV translates it, hold fast, here and in Genesis, but there's an archaic word that I want to use and I want to reclaim. Maybe you've heard it, maybe your translation translates it this way, but it's the word cleave. Jesus says, leave your father and mother, cleave to your wife, and the two will become one flesh. That, he says, is the design and the goal of a healthy marriage. And if you notice in these, vo- in these short verses, he actually puts it four ways. He says they should hold fast, they should cleave, they should become one flesh. They're no longer two, they're joined together. Those are the goals for marriage. In other words, he's saying this is a healthy marriage. This is what a healthy marriage is about. It's all about union. It's about being joined together. It's about becoming one flesh. And the way we get there is leaving and cleaving, to use the archaic word. Now, first off, we have to see, if this is the answer, we have to see how radical this is. Leaving and cleaving. Let's look at leaving first. Now, in, in the culture that that was written to in the ancient Near East, um, their family structure was a little bit different than ours. See, our culture has been shaped by the nuclear family. We think of mom, dad, and two kids, you know, in a single family house. That's a family. Well, in their day, a family might be 40, 50 people, extended relatives all living together. They get their identity, they get their status legally and socially from the extended family. In fact, your last name was one of the key identifiers in your identity. As you ask that question, who am I? You would look to your father's name. You would look to your family to answer that question. And to that culture, Jesus says, Um, And actually, even long before that, as we talked about in Genesis, God says, leave your father and mother. He says to a culture whose primary relationship is father-son, whose primary way of identifying is through the father-son relationship. He says, the most important relationship for you is not father-son, but husband and wife. That's the most important relationship. That's the key relationship. Identify. That's the key relationship in your life if you're married. And in fact, in the Bible, we see that they didn't often leave geographically. They stayed near their family. And so even that word to leave your father and mother must mean something more than just a geographical leaving, right? If Jesus is just saying, leave your father and mother's house, leave their address, move out, at least move to the garage apartment, then most of us have done it. If you're married and you don't live in your hometown, then you're halfway there, right? So he's got to mean more than simply geography. This is more than just your zip code. 
and your address, when God says to leave your father and mother, he's talking about something deeper. He's talking about your loyalties and your priorities. He's saying, start over with a new creation, a new family. We're commanded to love our father and mother. We're commanded to raise our children in the Lord, but we take vows and we become one flesh with a spouse. We don't become one flesh with a parent. We don't become one flesh with our children. But we're called to pursue unity and union and one flesh relationship in marriage. And it's more than just geography. Maybe you've heard the story. There was uh, newlyweds who got married and shortly thereafter celebrated Easter. And the wife said, I'm going to cook my family's recipe for the Easter ham. So the husband watched her get the ham out of the fridge, and she cut the end off of it, threw it away, put it in the pan, and baked it in the oven. And because they were newlyweds, he said, whatever, you know, not going to ask any questions. But the next year, Easter rolls around. She says, I'm going to do it again. She cuts the end off the ham. She throws the end away, bakes the ham. And he says, I saw you do that last year. Why did you do that? Why did you cut the end off the ham? And she said, well... That's the way my mother taught me to cook the ham. You cut the end off of it. And he says, I need you to call your mother and find out why you cut the end off the ham. So she calls her mother and she says, why did you teach me to cut the end off the ham? And she said, well, that's because that's what my mother taught me. And the husband said, I need you to call your grandmother. We've got to get to the bottom of this. So she calls her grandmother and she says, Granny, Why did you tell mom to cut the end off the ham when you bake the ham and you throw the end away and you bake the rest for Easter ham? She said, I I cut the end off because I had a six by nine pan. The ham wouldn't fit in it. (laughs) So I cut off the end. That's That's all I could fit in my pan. And so subsequent generations had been cutting the end off the ham because that's the way they were been, that's the way they had been taught. Now we can laugh at it when we're talking about cooking an Easter ham. But our families are our first classrooms for everything. Our families teach us about relationships and sex and money and conflict. They teach us about emotions and how to use our words, how to use our silence. They teach us all these things, some of them good things, some of them harmful, untruthful things, and a lot of things that are just different than the way our spouse's family taught them. And when we come together in marriage, we're called to leave all behind that our parents have, the ways that our families have shaped us in the idolatrous ways, and we're called to leave that behind and form a new family with our spouse and and start over and starting a new family culture. There may be things that you decide to carry over from your your family. There may be very good things, but you decide that together with your spouse. Let me put it this way. Our marriage problems did not begin in marriage. Our marriage problems go back a lot further because before we were married, we learned how to deal with things and we bring that into our marriage. And so God says, the work of marriage is a sanctifying work. It's a work that, where you examine your priorities and you examine the things that you've been taught. 
You bring them to the light of Scripture. You bring them together with your spouse, and you start a new family. And so it takes more than moving a mile away or a thousand miles away. It takes a lot of hard work. And I won't go into how you do all that here, but it's a lot of hard work of realizing how our past and our families and our stories have impacted the way we live in our marriage and the way we treat our spouses. So we have a new loyalty, a new priority, and a new creation in marriage. But that's only half of it. Jesus says, leave father and mother and cleave to the spouse. Cleave to your wife. Cleave to your husband. Now, why do I like using that ancient word? Because I think it is something that we can reclaim and it rhymes with leave. So, it's a great word to use. It's a great word to remember. Um, I had a friend once who was new to Christianity. His father-in-law was living with him at the time and and he was... My friend grew up in the Bronx. He had a thick accent. He had not read much of the Bible. And he said, you know what? I love the guy. I love my father-in-law, but a man needs his privacy. And I said, well, it is, it is true that, that God said to leave and cleave. And he was like, leave and, leave and cleave? I've never heard that before. Tell me more about this. And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, God says, leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife. And he says, leave and cleave. I like that. I got to remember that. I'm like, hey, don't, don't tell them I told you that. <laughs> um, you know, don't, uh, let's understand that a little more. But that part cleave is maybe even harder to define and harder to do. If you know your way around a kitchen, you know that a cleaver is normally a really big knife. It's something that separates. You know, this is what you use to cut the chicken wings off the chicken. It's what you use to break down a whole hog in the kitchen. A cleaver is a powerful knife, but when you use it in this way to cleave to something, it actually has the opposite definition. To cleave to something means to attach, to connect to it, to be fused together. And relationally, if you look up the word, it means to become strongly involved, to become emotionally involved connected, or even to use the word in our translation, to hold fast. There's something there that's more than simply not leaving your spouse. There's something there that's more than simply not divorcing. There's an action there to hold fast, to connect, to attach to your spouse. And isn't this what we promise in our vows? You know, we say, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and health. We don't say, in sickness and health, I'm not going to kick you out and change the locks. We don't say, for richer, for poor, I'll still be your roommate. No, what do we promise in our vows? We promise to love and to cherish. There is content, and that's what cleaving is about. It's not just that I'll never leave you. It's not just that I'll prioritize you. I will love you. I will connect to you. I will cleave to you. One of the ways we would describe this today is intimacy. I will pursue intimacy with you. We will become one flesh. We will attach our lives together, body, heart, and mind together, and pursue intimacy. And that's what we vow towards in our vows. 
Because everything in life, our jobs, our careers, our hobbies, our families, our kids, they all work to bring us apart. And so we have to commit to actually not just being pulled, not being pulled apart, but drawing towards one another and being connected. And so if you hear this phrase and you say, okay, so the goal of a healthy marriage, the definition of a healthy marriage is leaving and cleaving in all the ways that that may look and becoming one flesh, then you may say, okay, well, how do you do it? And maybe you're even saying, this is exactly what I want. This is what I've been trying to tell my husband. Intimacy. This is what I've been trying to tell my wife. This is what I want. So how do we do it? How do we leave and cleave? If it's more than geography, it's more, if it's more than simply staying in the same place, then how do we leave and cleave? How do we become one flesh? Well, I can't really tell you how. See, th- this is an itch that I can't scratch in, in this sermon, in one sermon. And if you notice, Jesus didn't actually tell us how to do it either. So maybe I've painted myself into a corner and said, hey, this is the goal of a marriage. This is what we're supposed to do. How do we do it? And I say, well, it's hard. I can't tell you how to do it, but I can tell you some of the reasons why we don't do it. Now, if you've ever been to Paris, you know that Paris is the city of lights. It's a lover's city. It's a romantic city. You can't be in Paris with your beloved and not feel in love, right? Like there's accordion music playing and cobblestone streets. It's, it's the city of love. And yet, it was in Paris that my wife and I had one of our most memorable fights. And I can remember this day what we were fighting over. Those of you who are married may think this is funny, or you may not. We were fighting over where to get breakfast. See, my wife is a French speaker. And she knows there's a difference between a bar and a cafe and a patisserie and a boulangerie. But I'm a Philistine. I just wanted something to eat. I wanted some coffee and a pastry or something in a place where I could soak up the atmosphere of Paris. And we are in um, Sacré-Cœur. If you've ever been there, you know this is you know, maybe even one of the more romantic places in Paris. And we're fighting over, do we want to go to a boulangerie or a patisserie? And here we are, we, and, and Katie's saying, no, that's, that's not a, you said you wanted to go a ca- to a cafe, that's a patisserie. And I'm like, but it's, they're selling croissants. <laughs> okay, so we go to the next place. Let's just go to a bar. Let's get a sandwich and a cup of coffee. Well, that's not a bar. That's a boulangerie right there. Yeah, but they're selling sandwiches. And at that moment, things escalated as they are wont to do, and Katie ran away in Paris. Now, this was in a year before uh, cell phones, traveling with cell phones at least. We didn't have European cell phones. Uh, We had no way of getting in touch with one another, and we were lost in Paris. And we weren't even staying in Paris. We were leaving that day uh, on the train. But what Katie did was she, it was really smart, actually. She knew that, that I couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> because I had to stay right where we were in case she came back. 
And, and yet she knew if, if, if I leave, if I let him out of my sight, we could, it could be really hard to find one another. And so she went and hid right around the corner so she could keep an eye on me. And we both seethed, you know, in our perspective of self-righteousness. And so one of the ways we avoid intimacy, one of the ways we pull away from intimacy, pulling away from our spouses in marriage, is by hiding. And this actually goes all the way back to the beginning. See, if you heard Jesus answer the disciples' questions with those words, to leave and cleave and be united, become one flesh with your spouse, you know that he's quoting Genesis 2. And you know the very next verse says they were naked and unashamed. But then you know the verse after that is the story of the fall. And the fall is the story where Adam and Eve, this couple that God had put together, sinned and rebelled against him. And as soon as they did, shame entered the picture. They became ashamed. They were exposed. And so they hid themselves. They hid from one another, and they hid from God. And then not only did they hide, but when they were caught, they blamed one another. See, one of the greatest obstacles to intimacy in marriage is hiding and blaming. This is what I do. This is what you do. In other words, we don't pursue intimacy because our marriages are cursed. We live under a curse. And our response to that works against intimacy. It works against becoming one flesh. So we hide from one another and all these opportunities we have to show ourselves, even in marriage, we hide. And I tell couples who are about to get married, I say, marriage can be one of the greatest places of being known. Marriage, as we said last week, is meant to sanctify you. And the way you're sanctified is by being known by one another and knowing one another and challenging one another and encouraging one another. It can be one of the most beautiful pictures of being known in your life. Or it can be one of the greatest places to hide. You would think, having made these vows to one another, that we would say, now I can show you who I am. Now I can be honest about who I am. But so many moments of marriage, we have that opportunity to be honest about who we are, to be honest about our faults, to be honest about our feelings, and instead, we hide. And the reason we hide is because we're afraid that if you know me, you will reject me. And I want to be wanted. I don't want to be rejected. And I especially don't want to be rejected by my wife. And so what do we do? We hide our faults and we blame others because we want to be justified. If I can justify myself, if I can get the blame off of me, if I can hide all the bad parts, then maybe she'll love me. Maybe he will love me and not reject me the way I want. The author Brene Brown has written and talked about blaming. And she had this confession. She said, I'm a blamer. She said, I was making coffee the other day, white pants on, in the pink sweater, in the kitchen. I pick up my cup of coffee and I drop it. And it hits the tile floor and it shatters and it sends coffee all over my white pants. And in an instant, my first thought was, dang you, Steve. Steve is her husband. 
And she says, I'm a blamer. In the time it took for the cup to fall to the ground, I had, I had already composed in my mind a way that this was my husband's fault. And this is how I did it. I said, he was supposed to be home at 10 p.m. last night, and he came home 30 minutes late. And so I was up for an extra 30 minutes. I missed 30 minutes of sleep, and now I'm tired, and this is my second cup of coffee and if I hadn't been tired, I, hadn't, I wouldn't have had a second cup of coffee, and I wouldn't have broken the cup and spilled it on myself. This is Steve's fault. <laughs> and in that moment, she's venting, and she's cleaning the coffee, and the phone rings, and she sees it's Steve. And Steve, you know, is calling her in the middle of this, totally ignorant to what's just happened. And she answers the phone, what? And he says, hey, babe, how's it going? She says, I'm cleaning up coffee off the kitchen floor. And immediately he hangs up. <laughs> and, and she says, it's because he knows. He knows it's his fault. <laughs> because I'm a blamer. We are hiders and we're blamers. And we get really good at it in marriage. But it pulls us apart. It pulls us away from what God intends for our marriages. And she said this statement. She said, we're too busy composing. We're too busy trying to figure out whose fault it is that we can't actually listen to one another. And we miss opportunities to listen and connect. And I would say we miss opportunities at intimacy. In our marriage, when we are trying to figure out whose fault it is, we're trying to hide our faults. We're trying to pull, when we do those things, we pull away and we miss the opportunities to connect. And those opportunities come throughout the day in cleaning up the kitchen and in grocery shopping and raising children. Dozens of opportunities every day to connect, to move towards our spouse. And instead we move away. We pull away and we hide and we blame because we think if they knew who I was, if this is my fault, they wouldn't love me. Maybe you're doing that even right now. You're thinking, gosh, I could actually have an intimate marriage if not for my spouse. They're the problem. Maybe you're blaming yourself right now. If I were not the poor and broken soul that I am, maybe we could have this. So does the gospel say anything about this? I think it does. Because in that story in the garden, Adam and Eve had rebelled against God. They had hid from themselves, from one another. They had hid from God. They're blaming one another. And God says, you've hidden behind these fig leaves, but those fig leaves are not sufficient. Those will not cover you. And he says, I will cover you. And this beautiful picture foreshadowing the gospel, foreshadowing the cross, he says, I will cover your shame you don't have to be ashamed because I will cover it. And that word to cover is the same word for atonement, to atone. And so in the gospel, we see that our shame, our sin is covered. We are atoned for. And so we don't have to fear being exposed. We don't have to fear ultimately any rejection because in the gospel, we are known completely God knows every sin. He knows every fault. He knows every thought in our minds, every wrong motivation. 
And we can't just blame others and get out of it. He knows us, and yet he cleaves to us. He loves us. He pursues us. He moves towards us, even though he knows who we are. And he says, I will never abandon you, and I'll never reject you. See, in the cross, Christ became the curse. And because we are covered by him, we are actually liberated to live honest lives in marriage. We're liberated to be who we are in marriage and to love our spouse where they are. This is the ethic of the New Testament, right? Show mercy because you have been shown mercy. Love, Jesus says, as I have loved you. Give without expecting anything in return. That applies to our marriage as well. And here's what happens. If we're both doing that, if we're both saying, I'm going to love you as Christ has loved me, that becomes the marriage that any of us wants to be a part of. That's a place where intimacy and union can foster and develop and grow. Every marriage ceremony that I perform, I tell the couple and I tell everyone there, there's a great advantage to Christian marriage. And this is it. You already have a Messiah. You don't have to look to your spouse to fix you. You don't have to blame your spouse for not fixing you. You don't have to look to yourself to save your spouse or rescue your spouse. You already have a Messiah. And the thing is, we make terrible Messiahs for one another. When we expose, when we are exposed in marriage, we often reject one another. And we have a whole track record of times that we've done that to our spouse and they've done that to us. And so we think, last time I moved towards you, it hurt. I was vulnerable. I, I tried moving towards you and I, I made a bid for attention and you shut me down. Why would I ever do that again? But the reason why we do it again and again and again is because Christ has loved us. He left Father and cleave to his, his bride, the church. He knows us, and he loves us, and he pursues us, and he rescues us, and he covers our shame. And so we get to offer that to one another. And when we do, it actually changes us. Last week we said that marriage was a metaphor. In our marriages, we proclaim something that's true about God. And so the reverse is also true, right? We see in Christ an example for us and how we should love in marriage. And what, what happens when we're doing that well, when we offer love and mercy to one another, it changes us because we get to experience the gospel in a more tangible way. See, every broken cup of coffee, every mistake, every failure to love, every rejection for every bid in marriage is an opportunity for us to proclaim what is true, that Christ became a curse for us, that he rose from the dead, that he is united to us, and he will never leave or reject us. Now Christ ended his teaching on marriage in this passage by saying that what God has joined together, let no man separate. 
Uh, we know that we have an enemy that works to undo our marriages, that works against our marriages. And so marriage is a spiritual battle. It's spiritual warfare. And in marriage, we get to be intimate allies for one another. As we work to sanctify, as we preach the gospel to one another, as we say, Christ has forgiven you, and I do too. But we also have the assurance of knowing that we do not do this work alone. When he says that what God has joined together, let no man separate, he's saying that God has promised himself to your marriage. He has promised to be at work in your marriage. He is, part, he is a party to this covenant, to working together with you. Because this work of developing intimacy in marriage, of being found and known, this work of forgiving and restoring is bigger than any of us can handle on our own. So thanks be to God that he has promised to do this work with us. It's hard work, so let me end by praying. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we admit how many times we try to love and pursue a good marriage in our own strength. And Lord, you tell us that those who build the house without you labor in vain. And so, Lord, we need your help. We're selfish. We are critical. We reject one another. We're sensitive. We have all these hurts. And Lord, we want to know one another. We want to be known. And so, Lord, I pray that you help us in those moments through your Spirit to remind us of what's true. Remind us of the gospel. Remind us that we have been loved with a love that will not let us go. And because of that, Lord, we have confidence to love our spouses knowing that we will never be left unloved. Lord, thank you that in Christ we are found. Lord, we ask that every marriage in this room, Lord, I pray that you will strengthen it and give us hope. Lord, for all those who are single for divorce, Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to be at work and to comfort. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.